this in the morning on K-Bear, seniors and senoritas. Blood drive day five coming in the home stretch. Let's keep those blood bags dripping. Last count, 300 and climbing. Bleed on, Sicily. Got that classic spooky organ song that's a toccata and fugue in D minor. I always remember it as like that Bach D minor song, but or also spooky organ music. <laughs> yeah, spooky, scary <laughs> organ music. It almost sounds like that. It's like that meme of the uh, dancing skeleton. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Wait, like that. What is which one? The the one with the guy with the pumpkin head, and he's uh, in a black morph suit. Oh yeah, it was like some uh, local news station. It's like a real person. I'm thinking at first I was thinking cartoon, but the thing you're describing is like a real person, local news station. It's like we'll be right back. Happy Halloween, and I think they're playing Ghostbusters. Unless that was just like some fan edited video where it's this guy doing dances in this mm-hmm. morph suit with the pumpkin mask. Why is that so funny? Whenever you hear the message, we'll be right back. Yeah, well, like the funniest thing in the world. Have you watched much uh, Eric Andre? Oh, I show? know why. Yeah, that's why. That's <laughs> Sorry, why. I forgot. This. Uh, what else happens in this? We got like, yeah, the very first shot. This is so this soundbite's like the very first shot, and it's just like a blood transfusion bag. I think that's what you call those, like filling with blood. Very, Mm -hmm. very morbid. Yeah. We got Ed putting up flyers for the Dracula film right there. I really like that uh, little signpost I got going on out there. It's filled with all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, I was, because we have the Blu-rays, I was like going and looking at what's like, I've already forgotten, but did you notice any really nice ones? All the Uh, flyers? Handmade books. Thought it was kind of interesting. There's always really fun stuff written on there. Sometimes funny stuff like, I don't know. what, What would be funny? Like snowmobile for sale or like beavers for sale or something. I don't know what you do there, in Alaska. There's a, there's a walkathon. Ah. Yeah. You don't get those very often. I don't think so. That's, that's the kind of, uh, activities you find in Sicily, Alaska. Charles, what are we, <laughs> what are we talking about today? Okay. So what we're talking about here is Northern Exposure, 1990 CBS television sitcom series. My name is Charles and I'm joined here with my co-host Lee. My name is Lee. I'm a fan of this TV show. Been watching it for probably over a decade now. And the first time when I saw it, I was in high school. And Charles, you're new to the show. So every episode we're watching is a first time watch for you. Honestly, we're in the, we're kind of deep in the fifth season now. And I think I've only seen the fifth season like two times before this rewatch. So a lot of it is like, you know, it triggers some memories and I kind of remember the plots and I'm like, oh yeah, this is this episode. But also there's a lot of stuff I forgot, it turns out. So it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, I'm still I'm still getting surprised by the show. Yeah. Well, speaking of surprises, this one was a pleasant surprise. Mm-hmm. I did not think that it was going to be uh, like, I don't know, sometimes you can tell at like the beginning of the episode, <laughs> on the opening soundbite, I'm like, all right, what are we going to be talking about in the plot lines? Like, is this going to be some nonsense? Is there going to be yeah. something which I'm going to disapprove of? Or is this going to be, <laughs> you know, fun, in my, in my opinion? And I thought this one... Really, all three plot lines, I thought, did really well. And I thought there was a theme that was running on throughout there, this motif that all of them shared, uh, all the characters, well, all the characters in their own respective plot lines were shining. So, yeah, I got a big smile on my face for this one. Nice, yeah. And like you're saying with that opening soundbite, just the whole vibe of that opening scene, the music, uh, the blood drive, 
It's like, yeah, this almost feels like it's going to be sort of like a Halloween episode, though. This, uh, as we'll get as we'll get into it, this episode aired like sort of at the beginning of, like, you know, this was uh, May sixteenth, nineteen ninety four, was the air date. So summertime, not really a Halloween episode, but uh, I don't know. It felt spooky at the start. Doesn't I don't know if it really sticks to that at all. But I, you know, even though it's not. I'm just like a sucker for Halloween stuff, even though it's not really that. It still is, uh, as you're saying, it's a pretty awesome episode and the idea of like a blood drive. I think they have a lot of fun with that plot line with uh, Maurice, as as we'll get into. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but like, don't fact check me on this. <laughs> um, I think in Japan, they do a lot of uh, not like Halloween stuff, but a lot of like haunted houses and just scary activities mm. during the summer. Oh. And I think the thinking behind it is that like when you get scared, you get chills and you want chills because you're so hot. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I never <laughs> thought about, yeah. I wonder what is it like being scared in the heat? I mean, Charles, we're in South Louisiana right now and it's so freaking hot. Like I think last week it was, the whole week was over a hundred degrees. Like it feels like over a hundred degrees every single day. Uh, it was like deadly to go outside. Um, didn't get scared though. I should have tested that theory. <laughs> Could have used that, uh, respite from the heat. Well, talk to me about the writer and the director for this episode. Right. Okay. So we should say first, the episode is called Blood Ties. Guess it makes sense with all this sort of blood talk that we got going on so far. Season five, episode 23, Blood Ties. The director, Tom Moore, uh, I thought this was interesting. He directed the original Broadway run of Grease or the very, you know, the original production of Grease on Broadway. Uh, He's, you know, he's done a lot of theater. um, Something that I thought was really interesting on his Wikipedia page. I mean, he's got a lot of theater credits, but it says a disastrous 1981 adaptation of Frankenstein by Victor Gia Lanella that closed after one performance. So it closed on opening night. <laughs> and uh, I could, you know, I was trying to search on Wikipedia for this. No luck. Uh, I don't think there's, there may be, I couldn't find the Wikipedia article on it, but there is a pretty interesting, or, you know, I thought it was interesting. Uh, New York Times, like sh- little short uh, article from 2021 called Exhuming a Monster of a Flop. They, uh, dissecting the failure of Frankenstein, which closed on Broadway on opening night 40 years ago, came with its own set of reporting challenges, but whatever. Yeah. So they're talking about, uh, I think they even interviewed Tom Moore, uh, cause he apparently was like really eager to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> even though it was closed well, on I think opening night. Yeah. I think that's nice that they did it, uh, that they got the director and they did it like 40 years after the fact. Yeah. Because if they did that like a week after it fell, I was, I was, I was thinking it act like that was how it happened. Uh, it happened yeah, like a week after. Article, I was like, that's yeah. kind of mean. Yeah. It's like you're just publishing this in the paper. Apparently not nice, you know. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'll let you read the article if you're interested. But the one thing I thought was interesting was apparently the reviews were bad. I think the special effects were lauded. Uh, someone said... There's no like real record of this. So you just have to like listen to the people who created it. And then also there's a couple reviews, I guess. Apparently someone in the audience, uh, it's apparently a reader of New York Times uh, from Florida wrote, I was there opening night and remember being astonished that the reviews were negative. I loved the show. The ending was amazing. The set exploded. So what? Like, apparently it was like a $2 million budget too. And it was like a huge flop. So they had lots of special effects. Apparently the set exploded. Mean, 
What do they mean they exploded? <laughs> like, what you, you, got, you can't just end it on that. I think that's, that is like the biggest, you know, that's, that's a big ending, you know, exclamation point. No, I mean, so yeah, I think he's also like, he's either, I think he's been nominated for best director, a Tony uh, for best director. I think he's got a couple nominations. So, you know, he's not, you know, just that was like a flop, but obviously uh, he knows what he's doing and he's directed a lot of TV as well. So yeah, we got him today on this episode. The writers, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who of course are are all over Northern Exposure. Um, So they're back in the fold here for Blood Ties. And as I mentioned before, the air date was May 16th, 1994. All right, nice. So we got like a new director, but also, you know, standard common writers that are usually doing great. Yes. And uh, just to like hop into the plot of the episode or the beginning scene, which we've already been talking about, you kind of uh, mentioned this a second ago, but you were talking about like Ed putting up the Dracula poster. This is like also still during Chris's... uh, K-Bear monologue here. And he says that Ed is putting on like a Dracula film fest. And the screening tonight is Christopher Lee in the 1958 Dracula. Uh, oh, I also thought this was pretty funny. He said there's a free V8 and one a day vitamin if you show your Band-Aid from giving blood. If you like show up to the theater with the Band-Aid, they'll give you a free V8 <laughs> and one a day vitamin. I think provided by Ruth Ann's store which is cool. Um, this is another thing that I, maybe I'm misremembering, but um, do they don't ever like bring up the Dracula Film Fest again in this episode. It's just in this very first scene, right? They bring it up one more time. Okay. Like uh, they tangentially bring it up where Chris is at K-Bear and he's giving off like another monologue. And I think he's reading from uh, Interview with uh, the Vampire yeah. from uh, Anne Rice. That's right. So yeah, yeah it kind of connects right there. Yeah. But otherwise, it's more of a trappings for the episode. More of like a, a vampire connection. We don't really get another, uh, like I, I was hoping Ed would talk more about vampire movies, but um, I don't know. I like the set dressing here. It's pretty cool. All right. Uh, should we talk about the scene that happens right after the credits? Sure. Yeah. What happens there? So it's Marilyn and Ed checking out all the blood that they got. They're all put into those, um, I don't know if they have a name for it. I just call them bags. Yeah. Blood transfusion bag or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, blood bags. Oh, I wanted to ask, are you woozy around blood? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I am definitely, I don't, I've never fainted whenever I've given blood. Um, I don't do the thing that Chris does in this episode when he does finally give blood and he like looks directly at the needle as it's, you know, drawing blood. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I always look away, but I don't know. Am I squeamish around blood? Probably so. But Charles, actually, I think the last time you were over, at my house, I broke a window and like gouged my hand or the top of my hand. Uh, you had to take me to go get stitches. And that was like, that was kind of bloody. What, are you, was, did that, are you squeamish? Did that freak you out? No, listeners. Yeah, he did that. He flew into a rage and <laughs> no. just punched the window. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it was a complete accident. He put his hand against a window and it just yeah, fell apart. It just exploded. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah. touched the window and it shattered. Yeah, no, I wasn't, uh, I didn't even know it was bleeding till you told me. You were like, oh, okay, this is bad. I'm bleeding. We got to go. And I was like, oh, shoot. Okay, yeah, let's get into the car. Like, let's. <laughs> Let's get this taken care of right there. Yeah. I think that that's like a little bit different than like 
in my mind, I think it's two different processes. Like okay. one where it's like a sudden cut. I'm like, okay, that's just fine. One where you're like actively participating in it and you're having the blood just getting out of you. I think yeah. it's the idea that like something's leaving you. And I, I think that's the thing that freaks out people, in my opinion. I wouldn't say that I'm like, like you said, I, I wouldn't say I'm at Chris level, but I think that probably is one of the big things that prevents me from donating blood is that factor. I So I've actually never, I should probably give blood. I've never done that. I'm just talking about like when I get uh, my blood tests, like, you know, if they're like, whenever you get your blood drawn, Charles, do you look at the needle or do you look away? Uh, definitely do not look at the needle. Okay. I definitely yeah. don't do that. <laughs> um, do, do you know what blood type you are? Oh man, I actually forgot. I'm pretty sure I'm like the most common one, which is what? Oh, do they talk about it in here? O positive? Can't remember. Uh, I want to say that's the most common one. Let me see. The universal donor. So I should be giving blood, right? Dang. Yeah, I like how that's like, that was the first hit on Google when you type in most common because blood type. Oh really? Well, it's probably because Google's listening, but. Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) um, I have one other quick anecdote about drawing blood. Uh, I remember one time I, I had to get my blood drawn and the nurse was having a little, or, you know, the, the lady drawing the blood was having a little trouble finding a vein. And then when she finally did, it was the strangest thing. Like my blood was, uh, I don't know if you would say pumping or it was like drawing so slow. She was like, did you drink water this morning? Like you're, are you dehydrated? This is like, you need some water. Like this is bad. <laughs> and then I think she had to use the other arm, eventually found another vein and it was actually flowing good. But I was like, that, that, was so odd to me. Like I looked away cause I didn't want to see it, but she was like, look at this, look at this. It's so slow. And I did look and it was like, <laughs> it was weird. It's like slow. coagulated. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, that's how I figure out that I'm actually undead or something or that. Like I'm a vampire and I have no blood. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, anyway yeah, go uh, ahead. snapping back into this scene. Uh, they're checking out the, uh, the bags and they're remarking about what type of blood types they got. And Ed says that he's got ABRH negative, a blood type that's only shared by about 1% of the population right there. And it turns out that in Sicily, Alaska, there's also, what are the odds, one other person with ABRH negative? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of draw it out a little bit where it's like Marilyn says, oh, like, you know, uh, maybe you're related or something. But she doesn't outright say, Ed, this can be your mother, right? She's like, maybe mm-hmm. this could be your like cousin or aunt or something. But I mean, like, isn't that what Marilyn's thinking anyway? Like, everyone knows Ed is an orphan and, like, looking for his parents. So I think she's, like, hinting at that. But it's strange that she doesn't just, I guess they leave it open so that Ed, the writers are writing it this way so that Ed can come to that conclusion himself. But it just seems like Marilyn would already, you know, get there for him. But yeah, Eh, it's probably just a writing thing where they wanted to drag it out a little bit. Yeah. This uh, Jeannie Hansen, that's the that's the name of the other person who has this ABRH negative, really uncommon blood type. Yep, Jeannie Hansen. And that's going to start off the first plot line. We kind of touched upon the second one between uh, Chris and Maurice, but we haven't really dug into it. But before we get to that, let's talk about the very next scene that happens, which okay. is going to be Maggie working on her car. And she's visited by someone that... For a split second, I did not realize he was already on Northern Exposure. (laughs) It is Jed. Yeah, I was like, I, you know, I saw him walk up and I'm like, oh yeah, this is the episode that's like, 
Maggie sees like an ex-boyfriend or something. And then as soon as he started talking, I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, this is the same guy from Gross Point 48230, that episode. And then that episode started flooding in my memory because like in the in that episode as well, he is also sort of like, oh, Maggie, you know, I miss the great times we had and like kind of like being a little forward, uh, even though she brings Joel, you know, obviously as her partner to that um, to that family gathering. But uh, yeah, he's up here now in Alaska with uh, a hawk, a Harris hawk, a falcon, a falcon type is thing. It not? What's that? It's a falcon, is it not? I re- yeah, I said falcon, but then I think he says, let me introduce you to Taylor. And I, in my notes, I have Harris hawk. So I think that's the that's the uh, technical term for this bird. Yeah. What I sorry, I just saw this in my notes as I'm looking down. Uh, Jed also mentions my old midnight swim partner. That's what he calls Maggie. So he's already you know trying to go back to the past and invite these memories. And Maggie's like playing along nicely, just you know as a as an old friend would. But as you can tell, like she's. You know, she's not interested as this in the same way that maybe uh, Jed is. Yeah, the he he also calls her his old tiller mate. Yeah, what is what is that tiller mate? Yeah, I'm not too sure what that means. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I don't follow that. If you're listening, listener, you could, you probably know, and you're probably screaming at us. So, it's like a, go ahead. It's like a boat or something. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that sounds boats, like I think. sounds like something you would do in Gross Point, Michigan. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Especially like Waspy, uh, Gross Point, Michigan, go sailing or something. Right. What do you think of this hawk? And this, I know there's like a dog that comes in here, Chi-Chi, and they sort of get at it very briefly. But um, I'm more focused on like this hawk plays a big, I don't know if he plays a big part. In, yeah, I guess he does. Uh, but he's in this episode a lot. So the the reasoning for putting a hawk here. Yeah. Well, like the hawk is the impetus for Joel to snap into action and everything. But I think the hawk is also a little bit of a representation of Jed himself, this person that is hunting like a bird of prey mm-hmm. and it's looking for its target, just like everyone else in the other plot lines that are looking for their target. And I think that's the big overall theme that we're going to get to is whether or oh. not people are achieving their marks. Nice. I like that. Yeah. I also think it's pretty important that in this scene, like we see the the hawk, I guess we can call him Taylor, Taylor's got the like sort of eye blinds, like he has the little mask that covers his eyes and that, that is a normal thing. And, uh, Jed, Jed mentions like, trust me, like, uh, Taylor's a lot more comfortable this way. If he didn't have that mask on, he would just be freaking out at like every single, you know, he'd be too occupied, I guess, with every single thing. Um, yeah. And, and even the, the very last shot of this scene is a shot of Taylor, a close-up on the bird. He's got the mask, the hood on. I think Jed says something like, you look more scrumptious every time I see you, Maggie. Trust me on that one, he says to uh, Taylor. Trust me on that one. And we get a shot (laughs) of Taylor who can't see at all because he's got the hood on. All right. That brings us to the third plot line where we return back to the brick. Everyone's kind of, everyone's trying to recover from drawing blood. And we see Maurice get greeted by another guest. Uh, I believe his name is Lloyd. Lloyd Hillegas from Cantwell, yes. right? I'm not sure. Is he yeah. like mayor or he's just, he's just like rival, I think. that's what Yeah, he's just like a rival because they've set up a bet. They were both at this uh, like a dinner of sorts and 
they're going up against each other on who can get the most blood donations. And apparently if you win this blood donation, you get like a plaque commemorating it for the year. And then like they go into competition mode the next year where they trade off on the plaque, whether you get to keep it, whether you get to lose it. And that's the thing that's like driving Maurice because he wants to win. That's why he's putting Chris into a situation that he does not want to be in and why everyone's just trying to draw blood. Yeah. Cause in the previous scene with Chris, he's like, you got to go get your blood drawn because of this bet. I think it's also, there's the plaque, which is sort of like the outward signal that like, oh yeah, Sicily beat Cantwell. But also I think Maurice has a $1,000 bet set on this. And I think, I think we learned by the end of the episode, it's like the way they um, exchange this money is Maurice is like, I'll be looking forward to your like $1,000 bid at that dinner this year. So he's going to like secretly bid for something that Maurice will gain a thousand dollars. You know, they have their own like little secret channel mm. for the side bet for the thousand dollar uh, bid, but yeah. Um, but, oh, I also liked in this scene, Lloyd says, Sicily doesn't have an eggs chance under an elephant's foot of winning a blood drive. That was pretty cool. It's not even like, that's just literal. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like a literal, uh, was that metaphor, like metaphor. simile? Yeah. Uh, it's not a simile because it doesn't say like, right? Right, like or as <laughs> analogy. I forget. They mentioned this, I think, right? But like the size of Cantwell compared to the size of Sicily, I want to say it's like two to three times as big in population. I can't remember. I think they mention it, but it's like it's supposed to be a much larger town than Sicily. Yeah, they got the numbers advantage. Stacked right. up against them, it's going to be difficult. But there's also one more thing that's happening in this scene than just this friendly wager between them. We also have Ed at the bar, and he's spying on Ginny Hansen, who could be his mother. And he asks Holling and Shelley about any information about her, and they don't really have anything useful for him. They just say that she likes the tuna melts. He likes tuna melts as well, so he mm -hmm. kind of like tries to connect that. And she finishes the crossword puzzle. Yeah, she always finishes the crossword puzzle. I remember that. Same favorite sandwich as Ed. Ed is like, he starts factoring the age to see like, if mm -hmm. like he's like, okay, if she's this old, then she could have had me, if, you know, she could have had me at this age. He's already like trying to figure in his head if it makes sense, the math. I guess it kind of does that she could be um, his mom. Well, this is it. These are the three plot lines. Which one should we stick with first? Let's start with Ed, because in the next scene with Ed, uh, we're continuing here, we get a new character, a Rinaldo Pine Tree, private investigator here in Sicily. Uh, is he outside Sicily? Nearby Sicily? He's, he's around, because when Ed comes in, he's like, oh yeah, you're the kid from the store. I recognize you. I wanted to quickly mention, I don't know if you remember, Charles, we got some fan mail probably in season four, maybe season three from at Pat G 85 on Twitter, writing about uh, the actor that plays Reynaldo Pinetree. Ronald G. Joseph is the actor. And if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, Patrick was talking about how, you know, he met the actor. I think he had like, he had other actor friends. He was preparing for the role. The actor was preparing to go, you know, up to Washington and shoot for this show. He didn't really, he had never seen the show before, but I think maybe had been a friend of Darren Burroughs. So maybe they knew each other. Uh, but Patrick, being a huge fan of Northern Exposure, was able to sort of like pitch the show and explain it 
to the actor and be like, oh yeah, it's like this. And this is, you know, kind of like, you know, maybe even sort of like seeing how the actor works and giving him feedback. And it's like, oh, it should be like more like this maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm taking liberties in the story, but it's pretty cool, you know, meeting an actor who's going to star in one of your favorite shows and they've like never seen it. And it's like, Mm-hmm. Like, oh man, I'm so excited for you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really neat. And I think he, he's got the part down of this down on his luck detective. And the one thing that I really liked in this scene is the setting. It really does look like, so it really does look like a place where a detective would ply their craft. There is lots of posters on the wall about missing people uh, there's like one of those old fashioned lamps that are yeah. like really long right there. And he's got like a shirt and tie. Yeah, he's got, he definitely has the look. Is there, I can't remember, is there one of those like cork boards with all like the red string, you know, <laughs> linking all the stuff? To, <laughs> that's probably taking it too far, I guess. Kind of. I mean, he's got the cork board. He does have a cork board. Nice. Yeah, yeah. He's got a cork board. It just doesn't have the red string around it right there. He's got like an autograph from a, um, cause he, he shows it to Ed later. Uh, Nipsey Russell from Password. Did you, do you even know who this is? I had to look it no. up. What is that? Uh, it's an, it's uh, I don't know if you would call him an actor, though I'm sure, I mean, he is an actor, I'm sure. Uh, but he was known mostly for being like a game show panelist, Password being like one of the game shows. I wonder, I may have actually seen him because my mom used to love watching the classic, um, what are some other shows? Um, but like, um, the ma- is it called The Match Game? I can't even remember, but we used to watch a lot of like old game shows. And there was always, I don't know if you've ever seen these before, but it would always be like all the panelists on these shows would come up with like really snarky, humorous, like one-liner comments and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like they were doing their own little bits and stuff. Yeah. They got to like get their 15 minutes of fame because television's huge. Yeah. But I mean like that's sort of like they became like a staple of the show. And it's like, oh, this, this is the episode with this guy. He's on again. Or this lady, you know, she's on again. Um, but interestingly enough, Nipsey Russell was named the poet laureate of TV. Apparently he used to do a bunch of like short, funny rhymes, you know, and that was sort of like little poems. Like his jokes would always be told in like short (laughs) poems in a way. Like in limericks or something like that. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, That's kind of impressive. (laughs) Uh, but anyway, he was, uh, apparently he was, there was some case uh, of credit card fraud that Ronaldo Pinetree solved for this guy and he got an autograph. Yeah. Uh, I like the little flyer that he's got for yeah. him. Um, so he's got, it's like a brochure of sorts and it's got these four things written on it. It says <laughs> karate weapons consultant can go 72 hours without sleep. Discreet courier. Yeah. I love can go 72 hours without sleep, which like, I guess, yeah, is really important for a stakeout, but it's just funny. It's funny that those are like the big, the big um, headlines, you know, on that page. Yeah, I like how like not one of them says good at their job. (laughs) (laughs) Or like, you know, yeah, there's no like testimonial or I'm trying to think of like what you would see in some in that sort of material today. You know, it does seem I don't know if he's like, I don't know, actually, I didn't even think about that. Do you think he's bad at his job? It it could be lucky at his job. Yeah, it could be implied that he's like not an amazing, uh, you know, private investigator. Also, it doesn't appear that he really gets a lot of business, at least like the way we first meet him. Cause he's just like lounging, uh, in his desk chair. He's got the radio on just sort of like 
looking like you would be napping in a desk chair or something, you know, like leaning back. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. He goes over with Ed, like there's a matter of a fee. And he, I think the scene ends with him saying, once you start something like this, you got to be prepared for where it leads. Uh, So maybe some foreshadowing or foreboding, but um, yeah, I do, I do like that. It's, it's not like an episode where, you know, cause there's this little moment when Ronaldo is like, we, we should talk about the fee and like the charges. It's not like an episode where Ed like gets in over his head and owes Ronaldo a lot of money. I think it's really neat in the end. Uh, I guess we'll get to it, but I like that Ronaldo's like, you know, I should give you back some of your money. Right. Which is like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he's probably, like you said, he's probably not getting a lot of customers, so he's hurting for some money. So for him to do that is still a lot for him to give up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I when I was younger, I, it wasn't like I wanted to become a detective, but I always thought they were kind of fascinating yeah. in today's time because you definitely don't really hear about them, like, like those old Sherlock Holmes types. Right. Um, there was one in which I read about called like the Pinkerton Detectives. And they were like the equivalent of what a detective would be like way back in the 1800s. And I used to think that the Pinkertons were just like Renato right here, where they would try to stake out and solve clues and mysteries to help their customers. Uh, No, it turned out like the Pinkertons were like union busters. They like oh, no. go into like <laughs> unions and like snitch on people and like get them out of the factories and recruit goon squads. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know about that, but I always thought that was kind of interesting. But I, I've always appreciated that. I think it's kind of neat to have detectives in your plot right here. And we're going to see this carry out in the next scene with Renato where he goes into Ed's workplace. Ed's working at Ruthann's store. Renato's got all sorts of information that he got in unscrupulous ways. So for example, it's got like a telephone bill that he got out of the garbage can. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I just remember they were like not very sophisticated strategies. Yeah. He's got um, also, he says genies TRW. I don't know if you knew what that is. No. What is that? So I had to Google TRW up until its acquisition in 1996 Experian one of the big three credit bureaus was known as TRW. So I guess just like credit card information or like um, receipts or, you know, the bill there. Like you see like what she's spending the money on, I guess, where she's going, where she's spending the money, I guess. I don't know. Uh, she, She calls, I know he like says she calls Cedar Rapids once a week, like clockwork. Someone named Doris, he got like a voicemail or the answering machine, I guess you should say. So he's going to have to call her back like after lunch or something. He does find out some information that Jeannie, uh, you know, there's no record of Jeannie giving birth the year that Ed was born. Also, the three years before or after that. So, uh, you know, even if Ed's birthday was like maybe a little off, it's just like she she wasn't giving birth around that time. Uh, Ed suggests... A plausible explanation, which is like maybe she used a different name or, uh, you know, she had to give birth like not on record, like outside of a hospital or something. So there's no record of it. This is this is still it still has some legs. I guess this case still has some legs, but it seems like too much of a coincidence. Uh, but hey, if we learn anything about coincidences, what was that episode with uh, when like Chris couldn't shoot the shoot the deer? 
Oh, the synchronicity like, episode. Yeah. Yeah. And he had like his, his stuff stolen. Yeah. And he get like his, uh, yeah. he, it's gifted, uh, <laughs> it's gifted some, some like bourbon, some, like apples and grain and stuff. <laughs> um, I thought one neat little yeah. thing that Renata talks about is that he unpromptly brings up his own mother. He talks yeah. about how she used to live in something called slab city, uh, which it sounds way worse. Now that he brings it up, like I thought that was like, mm. I thought it was like the nickname of like a regular city. But if you type it in and you read that Wikipedia article, uh, Slav City is like this off the grid alternative lifestyle community. And like the picture for it on Wikipedia is like a literal slab of concrete. Wow. And it consists largely of snowbirds in the Salton Trough area of the Sonoran Desert in California. And it took its name from the concrete slabs that remained after the World War II Marine Corps camp Dunlap Training Camp was torn down. And the thing that Slab City is most known for is attracting people who want to live outside mainstream society. Interesting. Yeah, it's... Uh, like, like a, a vagabond community. Yeah. And, um, if I if I got told that my mother went to go live in Slab City, I'd be like, okay, no, like no, 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 that is not a place <laughs> for an elderly person. Yeah. Like, no. Wow. But yeah, so he he doesn't really have a close connection to his family. He doesn't have kids. I think we'll also learn later. But he does sort of start to take Ed under his wing in his own way here because at the end of the scene, he's like. Now, this isn't very normal for me, but like, uh, what, would you want to come on the stakeout? You know, I think it'd be really fun. Like, you know, we could really, uh, be really enlightening for you or something. What does he say? Just like, I, I think he's just saying like, you could have some fun and experience. Yeah. I think he's just like, I think Ronaldo, honestly, from what I got from this scene is having a lot of fun being on the case like this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing because he just hasn't had any work and he's like, oh yeah, this is actually <laughs> kind of fun. Cause I don't know. It's kind of romantic. It's like a cool idea of like being, a, as we we're talking about already, being a private investigator seems like a lot of fun. And I love the the um, prospect of of an episode with a Detective Ed. You know, I, I don't know if you remember, but um, I want to say it's the spring break episode in season two where Ed is like trying to figure out who's stealing everyone's like appliances. It's always like appliances. It turns out to be Chris. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a little Detective Ed back in season two, so it's been a while. Um, We get a little more Detective Ed in this episode. Yeah. Well, we skip forward to the next scene involving them, which is them in the car. They're on a stakeout, and there's a little bit of bonding going on here because Ed remarks that he has a predilection to watching movies late at night. Maybe his so-called mother does too. And him and Renato start talking about various old movies. They're quoting, they're quoting lines back to each other. They're talking about their favorite moments in all of these films. They're eating donuts. Yeah. It's a grand old time. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's in this scene or down the line, but they do talk a lot about Chinatown. I know at the very end they're like quoting or they're talking about specific scenes in Chinatown. Uh, but I think they mentioned a couple different couple different movies in this scene. Uh, so they're really heading it off with, you know, their love of movies uh, when all of a sudden Jeannie does like show up right beside their vehicle and just sort of like startles them and really catches Ronaldo off guard. This is also why I was saying maybe are they trying to say he's like a bad detective? I don't know. Like you said, maybe just unlucky. But Ed, you know, can't let this stand. You know, he he has to like this is actually really interesting because I feel like in I'm trying to think in like other episodes, Ed 
is maybe a little less direct because in this episode, he's like, no, 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 I need to go apologize to her and like explain to her. Whereas like in other episodes, I'm sure it's just like a function of the plot, but he kind of goes out of his way, you know, to sort of fabricate the truth. I'm thinking about um, the episode in this season where he accidentally sort of gossips about Ruth Ann and Walt, you know, Mm -hmm. and he says it to Eugene and he's like, oh, you know what, Eugene, I probably, you know, I probably was just like mistaken. I was seeing things like he makes up a whole story. Whereas like he could have just like come out, you know, come out with it to Ruth Ann and explain like, oh, I, I did this. I shouldn't have. But in this episode, I guess I like that. He immediately is like, oh no, I need to go run and like catch Jeannie and explain. You know what I'm saying? Like, it feels like he he did the opposite of that in that in the episode with uh, Ruth Ann and Walt. Mm. Well, I mean, it's not like entirely consistent on the writing. Sometimes on Ed, he kind of just becomes what the writers need him to be. And in this particular episode, he was just able to summon the courage to go confront her. I guess it is important though because he does later say to Ronaldo, "Is like if we hadn't done this, I would have never, I would have never talked to Jeannie." You know, so it is a thing where maybe like he he wouldn't normally have the courage to like go out of his way. But like being with Ronaldo, being on the stakeout kind of puts him in this state of mind where he is more likely to be like, okay, this is Jeannie. Like and he's probably been thinking about it for so long. Like, this is my mom. I need to talk to her. So this Mm -hmm. is finally the chance, even though it seems like embarrassing and she caught them, you know, this is his chance and he's he's going to seize it, you know. Right, right. Well, it turns out that it was all not like in vain, but not what he was looking for. Because while she does have children, Ed is not her child. She has already a couple children, one in the Navy, I want to say is what she said it was, Mm -hmm. one in Wyoming. Right. And she just can't be it. She cannot be his mother. Yeah. Obviously, it's probably going to be a little disheartening for Ed. But she says to him at the end, I hope you find her. So the search is not over, but yeah, it's it's stopped here. In uh, the next scene with Ed and Ronaldo, they return to Ronaldo's office. You can tell Ronaldo feels like he let Ed down. Oh, it's funny. He's like, here, Ed, you can have your dove bars back. Uh, and Ed was like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have brought them. Ronaldo's like, yeah, they don't really... Um, not good for a stakeout because they melt. Those are the ice cream bars, the Dove ice mm-hmm. cream bars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is when Ronaldo's like, I, I messed up, you know, it's all my fault. And Ed is like, no, it's okay. Like, you know, I, I would have never gotten out there without you. I think Ed also says, uh, you know, and you uh, you drove and, and you were there with your donuts, you know? So it's like, he doesn't have a lot of comforting words he can give to Ronaldo, but I think the message is still there where Ed, and I think it is true. Like Ed is like, I would have never um, made it this far to, you know, try to get to the bottom of this without, without the idea of like, oh, I can be a detective like you, you know, thanks for taking me in here. Yeah, I think that's a really nice moment between there where Ed is like, you know, uh, Renato, if you want to, we can go out fishing if you want. It's just something to kill the time. I, I had a good time talking with you. And Renato is, he's down for it. Yeah. He is uh, wanting to fulfill that thing. So while Ed might not have found his mother, he found a friend. 
he found I, I don't want to say it's like a father figure because it's not like this person's like really leading him or anything like that right but he did find someone else that he could talk to about movies it feels like it would be like a father-son type thing because it's like they're going fishing and Ronaldo's like older but I think you're also right Charles I would I would categorize it more as like a, a friend mentor maybe but just like I don't know like a new friend I, I did write down Ed is choosing Ronaldo as family. Like, you know, he couldn't find his mother, but he's choosing his family. And yeah, I still wouldn't necessarily agree with you. I don't know if I would call it like dad, son, father, son, mentor, or anything like that. But I like what you, I like how you put it. Like, it's sort of like a new friend. I also wanted to to mention Ronaldo says to Ed, uh, you know, he he obviously wants to give Ed some of his money back. You know, I feel like we didn't, we didn't really get anywhere. So I I should give you some of your feedback, but he says also, I wanted to let you know, I enjoyed our association these past few days. Take care of yourself. Uh, And yeah, that's kind of what I think that's also like, we see Ronaldo's way of being like, yo, this was a lot of fun. Like I'm going to miss this. And um, I think that's what, Spurs Ed to to invite the uh, the fishing invitation there. Right. And we end the plot line with them just fishing. And Renato offers him the opportunity to become a detective. But Ed says, like, no, like, I got a lot on my plate. I don't think I have time for that. And Renato says, yeah, you make a lot of friends in this line of work and you need them. Which subtext for what's happening here. Mm, yeah. They're becoming friends. Yeah, this is the scene where they're talking about Chinatown. Uh, you know, he he tries to entice Ed with the whole idea of surveillance. You know, it's a lot of a lot of downtime. Uh, what eight bucks an hour, which is what he would mm-hmm. make. Um, but beats mowing lawns because you could even work on your movie script while you're just sitting in the at the stakeout. Yeah, I think you're right. Ed Ed doesn't Ed's not like yeah I'll think about it or something. He does He's not affirmative on it, but uh, they're still having a good time fishing. Um, Ronaldo, I guess, gives him a candy bar. He's like, did you catch this? I got it. I think it's in the subtitles where he's like, you want a midget Snickers? Which I guess is their way of saying like a, like a fun size. A smaller one. Yeah. Yeah. Was this before fun size? Uh, probably. Interesting. Uh, (laughs) I I, I don't know if that was the official term for it, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure that, uh, what Ronaldo says is not what they called it. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's any branding that would say that just like small or I don't know. Miniature. They call it fun size now. Yeah. If you look at the bag, but that was like, that's like a recent development. I want to feel like within the past 15 years. I mean, it would have been at, during our childhood or something for sure. So maybe it preceded us, but I kind of feel like maybe we were that generation. I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Hmm. Hey, it's Lee here. I just wanted to say that I was wrong in my assumption. I found an article from Time Magazine that said the Mars Candy Bar Company started selling smaller sized candy bars, which they branded junior size. And then in 1968, They started making candy bars that were a little bit larger than the junior size, but still small, and they called those Fun Size. So the branding Fun Size originates back in 1968. Miniature? I feel like you would call it like miniature Snickers or mini Snickers or something. Yeah, definitely miniature. (laughs) Anyway, that's the end of that plot line. Uh, And I I don't know if you know this already, Charles, because we kind of mentioned it with um, Patrick's like fan mail that he was writing in. But this is a recurring character, 
Ronaldo Pinetree is going to be coming back, I think, a lot in the sixth season. I mean, we're pretty much done with the fifth season, so I'm excited. Get a little more, oh, if not Detective Ed, at least like Ed's friend, you know? Yeah, I'm down for that. Let's do it, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's rewind back to the beginning of the episode and let's pick up Maurice and Chris's plot line, right. where Chris is standing at the steps of the church. The Sicily uh, Community Church, where we see uh, some signage that this is the blood drive, and he's standing outside. Eugene exits the church, and he's like, boy, Chris, it's rough in there. And then pretty much immediately after that, Joel is walking out with another patient who's obviously in distress. And uh, we missed a little bit of this, or we haven't talked about it yet because it's more with Joel's plot line. I guess this is a bit of an intersection here, but we see that Joel is having a bit of trouble finding the veins when he's drawing blood. And this is something that's supposed to be very simple for, uh, I guess, anyone in the medical profession. And he's sort of lost his mojo in that respect. Yeah, that's what they call the yips or the Steve Sachs syndrome. I believe we got a clip for this. Yeah. I don't understand what's happening to me. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I mean, you know, I, I've done this a thousand times. I've done it 10,000 times. It's not something you suddenly forget. This is like second nature. It's like riding a bicycle for me. I should be able to do it with my eyes shut. <sighs> Steve Sachs syndrome. Steve Sachs. How do you think so? Well, how many balls do you think that guy threw from second to first? Would it take one errant ball, man? Next thing you know, he's pitching him in the dirt over guys' heads. Lost his rhythm, his confidence, his game, man. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, he got it back, though, big time, you know? American League, he had a great career, right? That's true, isn't it? Yes, he did. Better than ever. You know, this reminds me a lot because I guess the sports analogy, but it reminds me a lot of, I'm pretty sure it's the episode Burning Down the House, but it's the plot line that I always forget is in Burning Down the House. It's with Bob, the chimney sweep, who Joel figures out is actually um, Larry Coe, this like famous golfer who who lost it. Like he couldn't, he couldn't make a three foot putt or something and ended up just like never being able to play golf again. Remember hmm. that? Yeah, I do remember that. It's funny because I just learned about this one recently. It's, um, it's something called the Mendoza line. It's a hmm. baseball jargon for a sub 200 batting average, which is the absolute minimum threshold for competence at the major league level. Okay. It was named after, the shortstop Mario Mendoza, who failed to reach .200 five times wow. in his nine big league seasons. So uh, what they did to commemorate this fella was to name this phenomenon after him. <laughs> this is like so, like, I find that to be so cruel, but like it's whatever. Infamous. Yeah, his name is Infamy. Yeah, and it's kind of like the same thing that's going on here with the Steve Sachs syndrome. So Steve Sachs was a fella that was, um, he played second baseman in the league, and he committed 30 errors in his season in 1983. Hmm. So, yeah, they uh, named this after him, and the Yips is a similar story of like a breakdown of basic mechanics. So yeah, lots of sports terminology is being thrown down here for not being able to achieve what you need to do. Yeah, it's kind of funny too. Joel actually 
Joel himself tells Chris, you know, I wouldn't recommend it. Like, don't come, you know, I know you're like getting ready and getting yourself psyched up, but Joel's like kind of lost faith in his ability at this point. And um, it's interesting that Chris is almost, um, you know, for Joel's sake, he's almost like, come on, Joel, let's do this. I think he grabs, uh, you know, he pats his arm, like where he he would where he'd get the needle. He's like, come on, let's do this, Joel. Mm-hmm. But then he also does remember the Steve Blass, the other guy uh, who, who, uh, what is it? Pitcher couldn't find the home plate. And then, you know, after two years, he was out of baseball. So he settles for a rain check here. Yeah. You know, one thing that I never talk about that much, but we should, is the clothing that they're wearing. And it's not Mm -hmm. like there's any uh, symbolic reasoning behind this, but the jacket that Chris is wearing, I associate this with Rick Perry. Wait, what is he wearing in this scene? Let's see. He's wearing that br- like that tan barn coat. Hmm. And that is like, I, I want to say like Rick Perry in 2012 during his run for the uh, Republican nomination for presidency had an ad where he was prominently wearing that coat. <laughs> and that's what I've always remembered him by. And wow. I think most of America does too. We like remember him with this tan brown coat. Now, obviously Chris is wearing this before the times of Rick Perry. That's all I can think of whenever I see that. I just think to myself, I'm like, I can never rock that. Like I can never <laughs> wear a barn coat. It's something about, like so, uh, just so rough worksman like about it. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine even myself, but both of us wearing, wearing this <laughs> like, Yeah, it's, I feel like someone would punch me off the street. It's like, you can't wear that. You never lifted more than like, the oh, most wow. you lift is your laptop. Get out of here, kid. Well, yeah, this is definitely like, I guess, more, more looking into Joel's plot line. But obviously, Chris does intersect here. It's that like, is it, you know, it's that question. Will he do it? Is he going to, is he going to go give blood? And right now it's like, not just yet. So hold on. Uh, the next time we see Chris, he's back at K-Bear. I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, Charles, where he's reading from interview with the vampire. Let's see. I wrote it down. I wrote down the passage here. Lestat says, be still. I'm going to drain you now to the very threshold of death. And I want you to be quiet, so quiet that you can almost hear the flow of blood through your veins, so quiet that you can hear the flow of that same blood through mine. Interview with the Vampire. Gotta say, I've never read Interview with the Vampire. I just recently saw the film. Not a huge fan of the movie, though it is very interesting for like the time capsule quality of it and the talent, like the actors that are in it are all pretty, um, pretty big name actors but it's, it's a little goofy for me. I don't know. Have you seen this it's movie? A, no, I'm trying to remember who's in it. Brad Pitt's in it, right? Yes, and Tom Cruise. Yes, that's what I was <laughs> trying to get at. It was those two. Matt Damon's not in it, is he? I don't believe so, though. I'd be, you know, maybe I, he ought to be. Like, there's maybe it's a little bit before his time, but there's a lot of like Antonio Banderas is in it later in the film. Nice. Yeah, who's the Kirsten Dunst is like the girl vampire? Little oh, she's girl. in there? She's like, yeah, very young. Oh, man. Yeah. Ah, well, back to Chris. One thing that I really enjoy in this scene is that whenever we're panning in with the camera, when he's reading this passage, we're going through the red neon lights of K-Bear. And the way that it's being done is that those lines look like veins. 
like the blood through your veins. I thought that was really clever. Yeah. He's always framed. It's true. That. That's a that's a purposeful decision. For like sure. They had to have known what they were doing. Yeah, Tom Moore looking for the looking for veins everywhere, you know. I guess just like Joel <laughs> trying to find the vein can't yeah. can't find the vein. One funny thing is I like the as he reads like the passage, he like cut to uh, Maurice. It's like reading the paper or something. And his eyes go up whenever Chris starts like really getting into it. So that's really pontificating. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a funny scene. Yeah, Chris really um like he start after he reads that passage, he starts talking about like blood, the primordial ooze. And honestly, like, what the heck is he saying? What is he even saying? He's just, I mean, yeah. <laughs> in so many words, he's saying like blood is gross, but he's really go he's going to town. Like he's having a field day here. With the yeah. uh, idea of blood. We pierce the skin and what do we see? Warm ooze, protoplasm, churning, <laughs> ingesting, defecating, pulsating. <laughs> and I think it's uh, the pulsating is when he says that. Is when Maurice is like, he looks up. He doesn't say anything. He just like, looks up. He's like, what are you saying on my air, son? <laughs> Interesting, yeah. That's basically that, right? There's Because like he's, it's mm-hmm. just a scene of him doing a little monologue. We We also, yeah, we get Maurice reacting, which is fun. But it cuts after he uh, he gets out his thoughts. To what is the next scene? Uh, it's still them at K Bear. Okay, what happens then? Yeah, this is where they're at K Bear. Uh, presumably, it's like right after the radio address. And Marie says Chris how it was giving blood, and Chris is like, I just couldn't do it. Uh, the more I think about it, the more it freaks me out. This the life essence of me is flowing out that I'm you know, visibly getting weaker. And mm. I'm already says like, this isn't something that you think about. This is something that you do. Do you think men would risk their lives in combat if they gave it a moment's thought? He's telling him that like, you're focusing too much on the mark right here on your target. You need to just take a step back, look at the full picture, know that you're trying to give blood to a good cause or in Maurice's case, trying to win a bet. And, let that clear your mind. So it's a oxymoron. Yeah. But in a way, when you don't think about your target, you're going to hit the target. Yeah, that's actually a really cool way of uh, visualizing that. And then uh, I definitely think this will also tie in with Joel because later he's like, you know, I wasn't thinking about anything. Talking about mm-hmm. like doing things and not thinking. But um, but I love that from Maurice. It's like not something you think about, something you do. It's like uh, that you're, you know, it's like you're imperative. And I also, it, it calls to mind like Hamlet, you know, like the the whole idea of like his inaction, like the whole play to be or not to be, or like the whole play is him just like, you know, debating things w- within himself and not doing anything mm-hmm. until like, you know, the last moment, I guess. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I definitely think about that when I think about this, um, Chris is like thinking a lot, overthinking, and that leads to inaction. But I think by the end of that really short uh, motivational speech from Maurice, Chris says, okay, all right, I'll buy it. And I think he's signing, you know, signing himself up. He's like, he's about to go, I guess, head to get some uh, blood drawn, get some, donate some blood. Yeah, he heads over to Joel's place. He's already, Joel's got a little bit of his confidence back. He's able to find the mark. And that's when he talks to Chris about it. They, they use a curious example when they were, they're about to draw blood and they're talking to each other. Uh, Chris points to his veins and he says like, Rory Raccoon. Do you know what that is? Oh, no, no. He's talking, he's talking about Joel's twin shiners. 
Joel has, uh, we'll get into this with Joel's plot line, but Joel has two black eyes because he just got out of a fight. And I think Rory Raccoon, like the raccoon has black around their eyes. Oh, okay. But uh, he that must be, I guess at the same time, he's like tapping his arm or something. Is that? Yeah, that that's what made it confusing. <laughs> and I was like, because the camera wasn't on his face. So I was like, what is Rory Raccoon? You know, like it still took me a while <laughs> to find Rory Raccoon. It comes from it's like 1964 uh, cartoon. Yeah, it's like a comic or something. I don't even know. I was just... Sounded old. Uh, it it, it aired on CBS. Okay. So maybe they had the rights to say the name. <laughs> but it only aired oh, for like yeah. one year. It was black and white. And there was a character there named um, Roy Raccoon. Um, there you go. Yeah, not much, uh, not much I can say <laughs> on that. I guess, He's a raccoon. <laughs> guess, yeah, I guess the thing I could say is that uh, I think that Rory is a really nice name. I really, really like the name Rory <laughs> for both genders. We got the Gilmore Girls, got Rory, and then what? Oh, yeah. Rory Culkin as the male counterpart. I'm trying to think of like other Rory's. Uh, Rory McElroy, the golfer. Ah, that's a that's an interesting name. It sort of like rolls around the tongue. Lots of R's yeah. and Y's. <laughs> that's what made me remember Roll, him. Rolling sounds, I guess. Yeah. But hey, in this scene, Chris, as we mentioned, does the thing that neither of us do. He stares directly at the needle. We see his point of view of like the blood transfusion bag filling with blood pretty rapidly. And uh, he faints. Like, it's pretty, I really liked his his acting of fainting. And, but, you know, I don't think there's much to be concerned about because I don't know if Joel's on screen or off screen, but we definitely, Joel has the line where he's like, Marilyn, like, bring us uh, some ice or I forget what he says. He's like, we got to, he's fainting, like, bring something. But the tone of his voice doesn't seem like this is a dire situation. Like he's going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one nice little detail they got is that in the background of this scene, you see this little, um, I don't know what to call it. It's like this poster where they're documenting how many donations that they've gotten mm-hmm. so that when you get to the top and you fill it out all out, it, it just looks nice and pretty. Um, it has like maybe a fifth still left on it that's empty, maybe even less, like maybe a six. Mm-hmm. And then when we cut to the next scene of them celebrating, that line is uh, much more above. It's like yeah. almost at the top. So they, did a, they actually went in and like colored in the red uh, blood in that vial. They got that continuity. There is a scene where uh, I believe Marilyn uses like the magic marker to just to like draw in the, mm-hmm. yeah. the line. Yeah. That, is that the last scene? Yeah, that is the last scene with Chris, right? Yeah, <laughs> he that's faints. the last scene with that's Chris. That's interesting. Um, I'm mm-hmm. glad that he, uh, that he does give blood. I guess this is like, feels like it's not really like a, there's a, not a whole lot of like Chris, like he sort of interweaves with Maurice. So I guess we should continue to talk about, but also obviously Joel here. Um, though I like the frame of Chris in the very beginning being like, you know, I'm afraid of the, afraid of, uh, not afraid of the needle, but afraid of blood. Um, and then at the very end now, He's like giving blood. He does faint. So, you know, not really like <laughs> doesn't gain like any bravery. There's no like magic that happens. Uh, he just, uh, he just, you know, settles on it that he's going to give blood and he does. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about Maurice, I guess. Yeah. Well, this is the last scene for their plot line where Maurice is celebrating them reaching a goal. Presumably he's won. And Lloyd comes in and tells him like, I know what you've been doing. You're gaming the system, essentially. You're getting kids from out of town to come here. You're getting folks that aren't part of the the community to kind of pitch in, to pump your numbers up. And, you know, 
we're going to talk about this on the next time that we meet, but here's your plaque. <laughs> yeah, he throws the plaque on the ground. Uh, Maurice is like, hey, like, don't scuff that up or like, don't get your fingerprints on it. Uh, we missed, I mean, we probably, it's not really, it's probably more of a Joel scene, but there are, there are moments throughout this episode where Maurice is nervous because Joel can't draw, like he can't find the vein. So what are they going to do? They need to produce all these donation units and they're going to be oh, behind. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That and then be Maurice more, says, yeah, go ahead. yeah, Maurice says he's going to replace Joel. Yeah. Um, which I don't know how that works. <laughs> I, I, okay. I think I know why they don't do it. But here's the thing. Joel wants to leave Sicily in season one. He's willing to do anything that he can to get out of the contract. But if he was just incompetent, they would have just got a new doctor. But I guess being incompetent is not a great look because, yeah, you got out of Sicily, but now there's like a huge black mark on your sheet that says you couldn't cut it. Yeah. And I would assume he would be like in debt because he never, he didn't finish the uh, contract. In debt to Sicily. But if he is in debt, though, that is kind of messed up because he served that many years. Instantly, and now Maurice is just like, all right, well, I'm just gonna kick you to the side because you're obviously going through something. But that would mean that Joel would still have to pay back uh, thirty grand. Yeah, it would not be good. Um, Thankfully, he gets his mojo back, and we'll we'll talk about that on his plot line. But um, there's also like talk that uh, Maurice says he's going to get some. What does he call it? Was it whack nurses? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to look this up. I'm pretty sure it means Women's Army Corps, but it could also mean Western Athletic Conference nurses. Like, mm, pretty sure it's the first one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So he's gonna he's gonna try to make that happen, but I guess it it ends up not happening later when he's like, "Come on, Chris, we really need you to give blood." Anyway, here at the end, here with Maurice, we get the plaque. We get the insinuation that uh, Lloyd is going to make a donation of $1,000 or make a, a a bid of $1,000 that is going to be like the side bet. And uh, there's a little joke here where Maurice is celebrating the victory here and saying like, Sicily is going to be above Cantwell, like we're going to be number one. And Marilyn has to remind him, yeah, also the, the blood is also going to just be here to help people. Like that's the whole point of us drawing this blood in the first place. Uh, but you know, that's, that's quickly written off by Maurice as he's celebrating with this plaque. Yeah. She points out that it's supposed to be for the community, not for yourselves. This isn't some sort of strange competition right there, but I guess if your competition does lead to good things, then who are we to complain otherwise? (laughs) It works out. It still works out for everyone, I guess. But Maurice's maybe has the um, Maurice maybe has the wrong intentions. But uh, let's dive into this Joel plotline. I feel like we're he's. I feel like all the plotlines are pretty tightly wound together. So we've kind of been like touching on parts, but it'll be interesting to see Joel's plotline in full, like from close yeah. to the beginning. All right, let's get to the meat of the episode, which is Joel, Fleischman, and Maggie. So we return back to Joel, and he is trying to stick a needle into um Hayden. I forgot that fellow's name. Hayden. Yeah. Hayden. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hayden. And this is not like his first one. Like he he I think the scene begins with him walking Clara out. Right. Uh, she's a woman that he just helped out. So this isn't like he just woke up and he just can't do this 
he was doing fine and now something is happening where he's trying to stick a needle into Hayden and he just can't find the mark and he just keeps pricking him by accident and just keeps trying to find other things. Uh, now that I'm rewatching this scene, I am noticing that the little uh, poster that I was talking about earlier where they were drawing on it with the magic eraser board, mm-hmm. magic eraser to fill it up, it's actually way at the bottom. So this must have been a continuity thing that they were building throughout the entire right. episode. Yeah. yeah, really nice on there. Yeah, they really don't they really don't start with any advantage against Cantwell. So I think, I mean, we talked about at the end, obviously uh, Sicily wins this blood drive, but I think when Joel regains his ability to like find the vein and uh, draw blood, he really goes on like, uh, what, what was it? I think Maurice was saying like, yeah, Joel's back at it. He's even giving like free eye exams and cholesterol checkups or something. So Joel's like <laughs> trying to draw as much blood as he can. He's um, reinvigorated, I guess you could say, of like, you know, with his new, ab- with his regained ability. Yeah. Well, in this scene, yeah, <laughs> he doesn't really have it yet. He's still pricking around and... I, I kind of got the sense of what was happening throughout this plot, but I wasn't too sure. I was like, I'm like 90% positive what's what's about to happen here. Well, I was trying to remember, like, I obviously, like, he loses his his magic and he has sort of like, um, or rather I should say loses his skill and he has sort of like a crisis of character, I guess, uh, and is trying to figure out, like, who am I? What am I good for now without my ability? I didn't remember... Like what exactly happened to uh, that that gives him back his ability? Were you expecting that, or I guess we're still early on in the plot? But I thought that maybe there was something wrong with like the townsfolk themselves or something. Oh, like as, as the ten percent, as the ten percent, yeah, the ninety percent. I knew I was like, it's probably doing was Joel, and it's like I knew that like the theme was Mark already based on the other two plot lines. Yeah, and it was like. I, th- I believe He's there was like a line mark, that yeah. explicitly said it. Yeah. So I was just like, all right, that's probably the big one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought that like maybe they were going to surprise me, but that it's could not be. like, yeah, that would have been weird. I think, but yeah, <laughs> interesting. I, I don't I think like it's that. that bad, but yeah, uh, that's pretty much that scene right there. We cut directly to the next one, which is going to just be Maggie and Jed. They're back at her home and yeah, he, he brought his bird. He's trying <laughs> to feed it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is he feeding it reindeer? I think it's reindeer because he says something about like reindeer to Taylor, the bird. And Maggie's like, trust me, it's better when it's barbecued or something. I'm, I'm barbecuing it. And uh, they're also drinking scotch. I think that Jed brought along. Jed asks about, in my notes, I said Jed asks about her doctor. So I'm guessing like he says, how's your doctor doing? But I mean, I, he knows that it's her boyfriend, or at least like that's what, um, whenever they met back in Gross Point 48230, he was introduced as like her partner. Um, Maggie is, I, I noticed throughout this uh, scene, throughout this episode, pretty evasive about the topic of her relationship with Joel. I mean, but I don't think that's like her being embarrassed or not wanting I think it's just like, I mean, that's kind of like private information. Like she doesn't really want to get into this with Jed because obviously she's not interested in uh, any sort of romance with Jed, even though it's painfully obvious that Jed wants to like reignite some old flame or something. Right. Well, speaking of continuity though, I like that the shirt that Jed is wearing is the same shirt that he rolls into town with. You just don't notice it because he's wearing a coat. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it like it keeps the continuity, but it gives us a little new flavor because we, you know, he removes his his overcoat or whatever. Right. I like it. And like you said, it's a uh, it's not a good look for Jed. I think this is <laughs> this is like totally scummy because he knows. Yeah. He knows that like they're in a relationship. He's obviously trying to ask like how serious it is, but I still don't think that's like an appropriate thing. Because what what if what if Maggie said it's like um we're we're taking it steady. Yeah, that's not a cue for you to go and be like, all right, time for me to wreck this relationship. Like, no, <laughs> like either even if she was going steady, or even if they were about to be engaged, it's like just don't do this, man. I don't fully know their relationship. Obviously, I think Maggie is. I think she's like having fun with him and is like happy to see him. I don't know how close they are, so. He does ask her, like, are you and Joel planning on getting married? Mm -hmm. As I don't know if that is like the right question for him to ask, but I think I'm with you, Charles, especially after sort of like reading the room when we can just see like Maggie doesn't really want to share any information about Joel when he first asks. So like asking her the next question, you guys planning on getting married? That's a little awkward and it obviously it catches Maggie off guard. Because I guess she hadn't necessarily thought about what the next step of the relationship is. Like, where is this going? And uh, yeah, I mean, it's personal stuff. I don't think she needs to tell him. Uh, you know, this is like, why are they talking about this right now? But that's where the scene leaves us, I think, right? Yeah, it really accelerates in the next scene, which is going to be in the daytime. Uh, and there's a walk and talk where they're walking from the sidewalk all the way back to Maggie's truck. I think it's Maggie's truck, right? Probably so. Is it red? Let me make sure. Or it could be, what is Jed driving? Because doesn't he have like a... It's got like a black vehicle. Oh, it's Jed's. It's Jed's. Okay. Because he's got like, yeah. he's got a little back hatch with where Taylor comes in or comes out. <laughs> right. And what's happening in this scene is that he's talking about getting some property. He wants to settle down. And then out of nowhere, he's like, you know, I want to settle down and I want it to be with you, Maggie. Why don't we just get married? 50-50. Just you, me, and a... Uh, what, what is that called? Says priest? You, you and me, the priest, and not a prenup is what he says. Yeah. No lawyer, no there prenup, just you, me, and a preacher. Yeah. I'm like, this is not... <laughs> not okay. Maggie's like, it's marriage, Jed. It's the rest of my life. Like, I'm not... You know, she's being... I wrote, she's being very patient with him. And as soon as she, like, you know, upsets him or, like comes clean with him. He's, he changes his whole tone. He's like very mean to her or, um, just like, come on. What is he like? Give me a break. Right. Yeah. Maggie comes in and says like, you'll make a great husband to someone else. And Jed says like, well then who are you? Like, what are you looking for then? And Maggie uses an example of ulcers. <laughs> she wants to be with someone in which she can talk about ulcers out of nowhere and complain and fight and uh, just have something come out of the left field where it makes her feel alive. And then she realizes, oh, I've had this conversation before, specifically with ulcers. It's Joel Fleischman. Yeah, this is taken from Hello, I Love You, which was episode 15 in this season, uh, where they're like, she's talking, well, in this episode where she's talking to Jed, she's like, isn't it nice we you know, wouldn't it be nice if you like have a partner, you can just like argue about what causes ulcers and learn from each other, like what your different like points of view are. Like, I think ulcers are caused by this or I don't even know. Like, it's like, obviously she's thinking of a very specific moment and that moment is in uh, 
hello, I love you. And Maggie's talking about her aunt and like her aunt doesn't eat Indian food anymore because it gives her ulcers. And Joel's like, no, it's not the food. It's like the secretion of the membranes. And, you know, it's basically, I think his way of saying like, it is like, I think it is the food, but that causes, I'm not a doctor. So maybe I'm wrong. Joel's right. (laughs) But same difference here. Anyway, as Maggie is saying this, it's like she's realizing it in real time that she's like, oh no, I love Fleischman. Like I want to get married to Fleischman or something because she has like some distress in her voice, right? Yeah, because earlier she suggests that like marriage is so far away and she's just taking things steady with Joel. But now it turns out that there's deeper feelings being associated with her and Joel. Uh, And Jed tries to explain, he says like, those types of people, they just can't sit on a deck and have a drink. They gotta like always be into something. I don't think that Jed is necessarily wrong, but he's also not necessarily right. And what I mean by this is that to Maggie, she's looking for like that spice, like that thing that always keeps her on her toes and she feels alive in her relationship. Mm -hmm. That's what she's looking for. But maybe to other people, they do want an individual in which like, They're not constantly arguing. They're always in sync 100%. They're exactly alike in personality and everything. I I don't think that's wrong either. It's just personally up to the taste of both of the individuals. So for Jed to impose his values onto her is really messed up. To be like, no, 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 let me tell you what you should be liking. It's it's when you're, yeah. you're, you're both people are alike. And it's like, that's not necessarily true. I'm not saying it's false, but it's not a universal truth. Yeah, it's weird that he like gets upset with her and tries to like put his own framework onto her. Uh, I actually forget how this scene ends. Like, I don't think there is a mo- like a, I don't think it's like anyone storms off. I think it's basically just Maggie being like, oh dear, I love Fleischman or something, right? I think. Well, he kind of storms off. Oh, he, he does. Right okay. after he says that line, he like walks into his car. Okay. He's like, okay, give me a break, whatever, like, and leaves and all right. Uh, but the next scene is with Joel. He's like back in his office talking to himself or talking to Maggie? Talking to Maggie. Yeah. Maggie comes in. Joel says like, I wish I had stuck with pathology. You know, I was brilliant at research. I shouldn't be out in the field, which is, uh, yeah, like I'm really starting to feel, you know, Joel often struggles with, uh, you know, being personable with his patients, you know, cause he has such a disconnect his way of life from New York is completely different from the way of life of people here. And so much of this season is him like connecting with the people that are vastly different from him and like sort of being there for them and caring for them, being like friendly and learning about them, connecting with them. And now he's like, Oh man, I I should have, I shouldn't have never tried this. I should just go back into like a lab and, do research for the rest of my life. Yeah, and Maggie hears what she's saying, but she's obviously got her own agenda. She's asking Joel how the relationship is looking. And Joel has to tell her to kind of put it on the back burner because he's got a lot on his mind. And mm-hmm. obviously not great for the relationship to be doing this. Yeah. And Maggie says like, all right, well, I was just coming in to talk about that. And that's when Jed enters the scene, presumably to mess things up more because there's no reason <laughs> for him to be here. And he comes in, surprises Joel, and they're saying like, oh, like, what's up? And I think, I want to say Jed invites him to a hunting trip with his hawk. Yeah, that was the, 
excuse because you're saying like, I don't know why Jed even comes in here. But yeah, he says, uh, you know, he wanted to invite Joel to go hunting with Taylor, but he's pretty much there to be like, oh, sorry, did I interrupt something? Like, should I, mm-hmm. should I get out of here? Like y'all having a little quarrel or something? Yeah. So. It's almost like he knew that she was going to go immediately yeah. to Joel. So he wanted to intercept her and like, y- oh you gosh. know, if it was going good, he could bring it down. And if it's already down, then he can, you know, play innocent. Yeah, exactly. He's just there to underline this, uh, rift that's, or this quarrel that's happening. But just rolling into the very next scene with Joel, He's still at the office, except it's late at night and he's still like running blood tests and doing things. Well, he's doing something even better than that. What's that? that? He's doing a test uh, on an orange. Like he's trying to draw juice from the orange. Whoa. As if he's practicing. I totally missed this. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I I think it's hilarious. Yeah. That's awesome. He's, you know, he's trying his best. Yeah. He's going to like, I'm going to practice on this orange. All night. Wait till I get my, <laughs> get my skills back. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Jed again pops in and Joel's like kind of the same thing he said to Maggie earlier, but like, I, I don't want to talk with anyone right now. Like I've got too much going on right now that I need to focus on. And Jed is like, well, look, I just want to help you. Uh, actually, I think I have a soundbite for this. I want to help you out. What? I do. I want to help you. In fact, I, uh, I brought a little something for you. $30,000. It'll buy you out of your indentured servitude and some transition money. You know, get you back to New York, an apartment, some furniture. You want to give me $30,000 to buy out of my contract? Hey, believe me, Joel, it's not taking any food off my table. What is this, some kind of joke? I like to think of it as my good deed for the year. I mean, it's not even tax deductible. My accountant's going to kill me. Get out of here. I don't need this. I don't want it. Hey, Joel, you know, no offense intended. It was just an idea. You know, why don't you just sleep on it for the night? Get out of here. Just, just, just sleep on it. Yeah, before I get more into that, I wanted to say how interesting it was that this was such a time capsule into... Um, when was the air date on this? 1993? 94. May 16th, 94. 1994. Yeah. Okay. So like they're, he's, um, Jed's talking about the national healthcare system that's going to come up and it's going to squeeze the doctors out of oh, business. Oh yeah. And they're going to have to go back onto the federal payroll because presumably everyone's going to have public healthcare. What that was, was that like in 1993, the president at the time was Bill Clinton and he had a goal to come up with a comprehensive plan to provide universal health care for all Americans. That was a cornerstone of his first term agenda. And I guess at the time, everyone thought it was like going to happen. They were like, OK, <laughs> we're getting we're getting universal health care. And they appointed Hillary Clinton to be heading the new task force and sell this plan to the American people. But ultimately, Within the year, there was a huge amount of hassling from a pharmaceutical and health insurance company. And by the time we got to September 1994, which is beyond the air date of this, the final compromise Democratic bill was actually declared dead. Mm. Uh, it died. So they never got to have that healthcare plan that the writers of Northern Exposure thought was going to happen, which I don't yeah. blame them. I mean, like... Kinda, Maybe a lot of people are thinking like, that, yeah. Right. But yeah, that's really interesting. I remember I was I remember watching this episode and I was like, oh, I should ask Charles if he knows anything about this. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I like how Joel immediately 
is like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to take this money. Like, like, what are you doing here? He's like, I love how Joel is so offended by this, but you know, I, cause I, I just want to say, I don't think Joel would take the money at this point, but I do appreciate as well that in the next scene, he is kind of thinking about it. I mean, obviously he's been drinking. So I think that helps ease that uh, sort of change of heart that he might be having about this. Because to me, to the core, I think Joel wouldn't take this money. Mm-hmm. But I like that they explore the sort of idea in within him. Like he has this thought internally. Do you think Joel would take the money? Mm, not at this stage of the game. Yeah. Maybe like a couple years before. Uh, the thing that I keep returning back to is I wonder if Jet's strategy would have worked had he walked into Joel's office and said, Joel, I'm going to be straight with you. I'm still in love with Maggie O'Connell. I love her. You know, I'm deeply in love with her. We went to, we were from the same hometown. I've been in love with her my entire life. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to win her heart back. And I understand that like you might not be here for very long, uh, but Maggie seems like she's set to be in Sicily. I'm willing to buy out the rest of your contract, 30000 so that I can try to play my card. And I wonder if that would have had more success. Man, that would have been scary. Yeah, I would have really been nervous know. for Joel and Maggie. That's like such a... Because <laughs> you're putting it on the line. I think the thing that like gets yeah. Joel under his skin is that he's coming up with like a pretense. He's saying, it's because I'm so nice. Yeah. I'm not even going to get a, ta- you know, a, a tax break from this. This is my good Samaritan act. Yeah. And that's the thing that makes him mad. Because I think maybe Joel knows that like this is his end game. Like he's trying to sneak right. in and exactly. uh, get Maggie. Right. And that you brought up a really good point. Something that we haven't talked about, but uh, Joel is, you know, contractually here in Alaska for a limited amount of time. It was always assumed that he's going to go back to New York after this. So what does that mean for their relationship, Joel and Maggie? I think you already know, Charles, that at some point Rob Morrow leaves the show. So, you know, it's not, you know, they don't stay together forever uh, by the sixth season. But um, so I guess we never have to like face that question exactly. But it is a powerful sort of problem that they have where Joel theoretically is going to be going back to New York in what at this point now, like what, a year or two? And they're just starting to hit it off. And now in this episode, talk, you know, Maggie's thinking about marriage. So yeah. Um Yeah. But also I I, I do actually the the version of the scene that you were pitching, uh, I think mm-hmm. is like much more dramatic and uh sort of frightening for like the relationship and really makes you call into question a lot of things. I think the, I'm guessing the reason why we do it this way is because Joel is like immediately, instead of like really having his like life being put into perspective, he is more outraged because this is obviously like a, some tactic that Jed is using. And that outrage later will channel into maybe a, you know, an outburst and uh, a solution for his like problem that he can't, draw blood right now. So like that's the way the writers wanted to take it, I guess. You know, I, I thought of, I just thought of something when we were, you were talking about this. Okay. This is, this would be like the ultimate, we would, we would not do this until like very end of season six of us doing this podcast. <laughs> but like, this is like the ultimate Patreon idea <laughs> is to write 
me and you write the final script of like that theoretical comeback for Northern Exposure. Like, what if they brought it back for one more movie? And you got to settle all the, the the ties, the loose ends. Like, what if we got oh, Joe and Maggie to marry? Like, what <laughs> if we got, like we well, could settle in our fanfic what happens at the end of Northern Exposure? I don't know if I'm the person to do that. And now that we said that, I'm worried that people are going to be like, "Oh, you have to like give us your take." On, but I'm also, <laughs> but I am very, like, I'm kind of excited for you to see what is going to happen in season six and then like, see if you have any ideas. Cause there, you know, it, I don't know, like, I don't know, maybe you already know, but I'm guessing you probably don't, I you don't all know. know what's I, going I to happen. No, yeah. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I can guess, like, I already don't like that Joel leaves. Yeah. So I want there to be a future. In which Joel comes back and we set all these loose ends of what we think <laughs> Northern Exposure should end. Now, rest in peace. God bless his soul. John Fauci. I know that he's passed away. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he was still alive. <laughs> he, would, he would want his, you know, his dedicated uh, viewers, yeah. his dedicated listeners to try to try to take their own magic into the show. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that. Uh, well, yeah, that's a that's something that we're gonna have a lot of time to think about, and I'm curious to see what ideas you might be formulating once you see more of season six. But so Jed offers the thirty thousand dollar check. He says, "Sleep on it." Joel throws it back at him. The next scene, when we see Joel, he's in uh, the brick kicking back some beers. And, uh, or actually, I think it's actually, it's like pina coladas, right? Yeah. Is that a pina colada or is that like a white Russian or something? Yeah. It is in sort of like a fancy cocktail glass. And then later Eugene makes him a pina colada double rum. So I'm guessing he's drinking those. Mm. Maggie rolls in and Joel's like, I think you're right. I think we should talk. Maggie though says, I'd like to Joel, but Jed's waiting outside and there's really nothing worse than cold ricotta. Oh, she picked up some, uh some like lasagnas to go from the brick. Mm-hmm. She's, I, I wrote down, I wrote this down cause she says there's really nothing worse than cold ricotta. Um, pretty sure cannolis, you know, the cannoli, the, uh, Irish or <laughs> the Italian, <laughs> the Italian, uh, dessert. <laughs> it's, uh, it's filled with ricotta cheese. I didn't know if you knew that. I, cold, I, I think I knew the cheese, back yeah. of my mind, but I thought, hang on. Maybe I'm just really stupid. I thought ricotta was the pasta. No, it's a it's cheese. Like the pasta shape. Uh, I might be saying it, it wrong. Like ricotta, ricotta. I may be saying it wrong, but it's the it's like a uh, sort of like a creamy, pasty cheese. Uh, you you do have it in lasagna. I'm trying to think of what else. No, I just typed it in. You're you're totally oh. right. <laughs> yeah, Maggie leaves, I guess, and Joel sits there with Eugene, contemplating his whole like direction in life right now. Yeah, he says, give me one reason why I shouldn't be leaving Sicily. I got, I can afford to breach my contract right here. And it's really obvious. It's like a fill in the blank statement. It's like, yeah, the one reason's right there. She just left. (laughs) Yeah, Eugene, not even say, I don't even, he doesn't really even play devil's advocate. He's just kind of like there listening to Joel. Shame on you, Eugene, for like, because Eugene at the end is like, I'd take it. Take the money and run. I'd take that money. (laughs) (laughs) it's like no Eugene I thought you liked Joel I guess you know whatever we don't really know Eugene too much right now he's just filling in um, 
for uh, Dave, but uh, right. Maurice also bops in there to talk about the whole, uh, what is it, women's Army Corps nurses that are going to fly in and maybe replace Joel. And uh, I, I just wanted to mention that Maurice's um, regular drink, he orders his regular and Eugene brings him a uh, schnapps with a soda back. What's a soda back? Just like a, so a shot of schnapps and then like a little glass of soda to sip after. You know, like when you take a shot, you need like a little something to drink after. I thought it was just, yeah, I thought that's a... Chaser. Yeah. A chaser. Yeah. I thought it was just called a chaser. I think it's another, there's just another term. You know, there's all these different lingo. Okay. But anyway, the next scene with Joel, he's hanging out with Marilyn. I wouldn't say hanging out. He's in the office and so is Marilyn. He's, Joel is looking out. No, no, no. Marilyn is looking out the office window. Jed and Maggie across the street. And, uh, you know, Joel's just kind of chatting up with Marilyn. Like, you know, what do you think about that ridiculous bird? Marilyn lets out some knowledge here. Apparently Taylor, the bird, Taylor, killed Chi-Chi, that dog that we saw for like a split second, uh, the poodle, earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's pretty crazy to hear that because we saw the dog. It's like, I wouldn't say it's like the largest dog, but it's a big dog. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty messed up that that happened too. Joel immediately flies into a rage. Uh, he says, cancel all my appointments. He, Marilyn's like, you don't have any appointments. He's like, well, if anyone calls, if anyone comes in, I'm not here. And he's, uh, yeah, he's on it. He's going after Jed now. Yeah, I feel like, how is this man, how do you not get put in jail for that? Right? <laughs> like, that seems like Yeah, that dangerous. sounds messed up. I think Jed says, like, Chi-Chi wasn't on her leash. It's like, oh, so it's like, you know, you should have had that, your dog leashed, not- but like a like a hawk that's his predator that just like brutally attacks a you know yeah that doesn't that doesn't hold a lot of water in my opinion like it could have been unleashed in its own backyard it's a bird it can fly three-dimensional space that doesn't make any sense are you saying that like when you're in town i have to be with my dog 24 7 even within my own private property it's like no that doesn't make any sense like (laughs) so messed up yeah i feel like I don't know if you go to jail for this, but I feel like crippling fines should be imposed. I think like some legal action needs to be done. This is not okay. For sure. This is like, this is totally not an okay thing. And Joel goes to confront him. This is the final thing. This is the final thing that causes him to snap. So he goes over to meet up with Jed, who's about to let Taylor out for, you know, a spin into the air. And he says, like, I, you know, this is it. This is the final line that you're going to come into the town, put the moves on Maggie. And now you're going to kill Chi Chi. And he goes, Chi Chi's like, yeah, the tiny little poodle. And he says, that was too bad. I was like, what? <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I've got the soundbite here. I want to just play because I love uh, Rob Morrow. Like, I think we we get a lot of his acting throughout the series of him being like exasperated and angry. But this is like, he's not like victimized here he's like asserting himself and like uh i I don't know i like that flavor of rage that we see here in uh in joel fleischman so let's listen to it go ahead wise guy what do you got to say for yourself what are you talking about you think you can just blow in here you kick me when i'm down and you put the moves on o'connell well that's one thing i'm drawing the line right here what are you talking about you know exactly what i'm talking about i'm talking about chi 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 yeah the little poodle you got it that was too bad Oh, too bad. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mr. Noblesse Oblige. Flashman, what do you want me to do? She let her run loose. Hey, I am the physician in this town and I have responsibility to these people. Maybe you think you can just come here and push them around, but if you think I'm going to stand idly by and watch them. What? What are you going to do? What? Uh-huh. 
What? Oh, jeez! Oh, I love that Joel says, I have a responsibility to the people of this town, you know, and he's really, you know, I don't know if this is a personal thing or not, but I want to believe in Joel, like what really set him off is that, I don't know, what is it that's even happening here? Is he just like so angry at Jed that any excuse of Jed's, uh, any sort of error that Jed makes, Joel can jump on that and start a confrontation because of it. But also, I think it is a little more than that because I don't know, maybe I'm just still stuck on this, but Charles, we're talking about it. A hawk killing a dog, it's really messed up. I think someone needs to, like, I think Joel hearing that from Marilyn is just surprised to learn, like, what is going on in Sicily? And not like, why haven't I heard about this? And why hasn't anything been done about this? I don't know. Yeah. And it, I think you bring up a good point. You're saying that, like, yeah, his relationship with Maggie is really important, but so is his relationship with the town. And it seems like this man just came in here and ruined the uh, the peace that they had. And it's ruining, like, everything. Him and Maggie and him and the town. Joel yeah, and himself. His, yeah. Right. He's hitting his mark. He's become a hunter. He's become a vampire of sorts where he's draining mm. the literal blood from people. Unlike Joel, who is draining blood, but is doing it for a beneficial duty. This man comes in here and kills a poodle <laughs> with his oh hawk. I think that's what sets off Joel because he wants to defend the honor of the town. He wants to defend his honor with Maggie. He wants to make sure that like he is responsible for his townsfolk. He wants to have their back. And so he slugs Jed, I think like in the stomach. In the ribs. In the ribs, yeah, because he's like, oh, my ribs. And then uh, Jed returns the blow, punches Joel, I think, in the face. Yeah, because he's got the uh, twin shiners in the next scene. All while this is happening, Taylor is sitting there with the hood off. You know, I think Taylor, previously when he had the hood on, got like disturbed and excited by Chi-Chi barking, you know? Mm -hmm. Now he has the hood off and he seems pretty calm. Actually, I think the footage is uh, slowed down a little bit, probably because birds move like unnaturally swiftly. Like they like shoot their heads around really fast. So maybe they, you know, they wanted like a cleaner shot that wasn't as jittery. But anyway, like you can kind of tell it looks a little slowed down, but I think what's important is um, Taylor in this scene I'm pretty sure in most scenes he is he does have the blinders on. In this scene he's got them off. Right. Yeah, that's uh I guess like really symbolic for Joel Fleischman himself because now he's doing, he's not thinking. He's got the blinders off. And we're going to see that in the next scene where he, whenever he's taking blood out of Chris and we talked about it from Chris's perspective, but on Joel's perspective, he's saying like, yeah, uh you know, I got back into the groove of things once I stopped thinking. Once I stop putting too much thought, I'm trying to be precise and rather just try to be accurate. That's when I really started to get my mojo back. Yeah. I stopped thinking about medicine, veins, needles for five minutes. Tell you the truth, I stopped thinking completely. So he's like, you know, I did some pretty silly stuff, like go out and punch Jed. But, uh, but you know, that's like one far end of the spectrum. But the idea here works still with... Um, him trying to find the vein is like try, not trying to overthink it too much and just go with his um, his experience and his instincts, I guess. Right. I, I think this uh, there's like a really beautiful line in the last scene between Joel and Maggie. Maggie mm -hmm. comes in once all the people come in and she's saying like, hey, can you afford to do one more 
blood donation? I think I could do this. I thought I could afford to get a little lightheaded, you know? And I think that's a really important line, a little lightheaded. Because when mm. you drain the blood, you're not as coherent. And she's going to be like Joel, where she just doesn't want to have to keep thinking about it. She just wants to get into the flow of things. Yeah, I like that. For the, you know, I see what you're saying, because they don't, this episode doesn't end with them talking about marriage, you know, exactly what you're saying. It's like they're kind of going with the flow of it. That's a very beautiful interpretation of what's going on here. Because, you know, Maggie was saying, I don't have any jobs lined up right now. I can afford to be a little lightheaded. I, I love that. Yeah, she. I like that she invites Joel for a movie, uh, like a movie date night. She can like warm up a frozen pizza. Joel's like, no, nah, I don't really want to hang out with Jed and you right now, but Jed's already gone, baby. So I'm excited. Maybe they're going to watch a Dracula movie or something. I don't know. <laughs> we didn't get enough Dracula movies in this episode. Yeah, I like how their outfits match a lot. Kind of like a denim shirt, light blue. And then uh, I think it's brown, I want to say. They got dark pants that they're wearing. Nice. Yeah. Appreciate the, uh, you know, pointing out the costume in this episode. There was, yeah, I didn't take as many great costume notes, but I remember we did the Patreon, like fashions of Northern Exposure season one and two, but there's some mm -hmm. really good ones this season I've been noticing. So eventually we'll get to season five. Some great fashion. <laughs> Okay, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before, and we get their outsider opinion on this episode. Completely fish out of water. This is uh, presumably the only piece of Northern Exposure that they've seen is today's episode. And uh, our guest today is my friend Brandon, who I met uh, kind of, well, I guess it's not that recently, some time has passed, but over sort of... Uh, Post-COVID life, uh, I started playing a lot more board games. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. I'm, I'm a big board game junkie, but I've played a lot of board games online through virtual tabletop board games. And that's where I first met Brandon, by playing various board games online. Uh, he's a very skilled player, and he's into some really cool board games. Uh, and also, he is a medical professional as well. So I'm wondering if that'll factor into his take on this episode. Anyway, uh, let's give it a listen, Charles. Okay, I just watched Northern Exposure Season 5, Episode 23, Blood Ties. I hadn't really considered until just now the, the title being so appropriate to the, the theme of the episode, which, you know, on one hand they're doing this uh, competitive blood drive thing in the town, and on the other we have Ed and Jeannie. Uh, Ed thinking this new woman who moved into town was, might be his mother. Um, I liked Ed a lot. He, he he seemed generally intelligent, but like also very naive and like very wanting for for some kind of positive relationship throughout the episode. Um, you know, having never watched it before, uh, it was strange that he he seemed to be pretty intelligent, but also like had the occasional tropey dumb guy kind of dialogue, like these sort of dumb reactions that aren't him trying to be funny, but he's inadvertently funny. I didn't really see that with any of the other characters, so that felt like a noteworthy kind of thing I earmarked in my head. Um, but anyway, someone who's like also squeamish with uh, giving blood and stuff, despite, you know, I work in healthcare, I see a lot of blood, but the idea of it being removed from me, much like, um, I can't remember his name. One of the, one of the, one of the characters, he, he 
he was the one having like existential crisis monologue over the idea of giving blood and just that that very much resonated with me i don't know i I feel like i got a really good sense of the characters you know seeing that it's run for at least five seasons uh, i presume most of these characters are pretty well fleshed out at this point so it's nice to get a, a quick picture of who they are they're also like I, I wrote down some uh, kind of off-color references or remarks that were made throughout the show uh, calling someone Hitler uh, saying that the someone saying the drive up to the town was like the trail of tears uh, the detective referring to uh, his many Snickers bars and midget Snickers um, you know the the guy who runs the town, Maurice, uh, saying that he was going to hire some smart Asian kids who work hard and don't complain. Just kind of funny stuff that, you know, funny in, in the sense that, like, it, it's pretty dated now. I also noticed at the onset, I mean, having no idea whatsoever about what the premise of the show was, uh, the opening being about, you know, blood drive and giving blood, uh, and seeing on the poster board that the flyer was put on at the, the opening shot that um, there were like kidnappers mentioned and, and missing people had me kind of geared up to, to be watching a show that was completely different than this like soft comedy drama. I, I didn't know if I was going to watch some kind of uh, surreal or like tense horror type thing or something to that effect. Uh, so it was it was a bit of a a funny way to ease into the show. Uh, I also just like Jed's remark to the doctor, uh, Joel Fleshman, that, uh, you know, he said something about, like, you need to go back to New York and, and suckle the teat uh, as best you can before national health care kicks in. And uh, it looks like the show was shot in the 90s, so uh, we're still waiting on that national single-payer system to kick in. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I found it pretty charming. I also found it funny that that Maurice on this thousand dollar bet was glad to pay for nurses to fly up just to win the bet. I mean, to me, it, it kind of speaks that he, he's probably a, a character who's a pretty crass and prideful. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. All right. That was Brandon with his commentary on the episode. I got to say, I thought it was really interesting that he brought up the off color references. <laughs> Yeah. Like, not a lot of guests do that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy when uh, it's, when, you know, Brandon enumerates it, like each, you know, <laughs> pointing out all of the off-color references in one episode. Though, I'm having trouble remembering, what was the, um, someone references Hitler in this episode? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that one. I, I'm sure I, it's I remember, in there, but I just, for, you know, forgotten. Yeah, I don't doubt it. <laughs> I he, he said, uh, 12 tears, midget snickers, hiring some smart Asian kids that don't complain. <laughs> Trail of tears was Jed. Um, yeah, the midget snickers, he said it was the um, private investigator guy. And the, you know what's funny about the last comment about like, you know, smart Asian kids who don't uh, complain and do their work or whatever. There's actually a deleted scene for this episode in which uh, Maurice is leading a procession of cars down Main Street, Sicily. And uh, there's various people, but there are some like Asian Americans in there. And Maurice gets them all to pull, you know, to pull up and park. And he's like, stay here, I'll be right back. But he does it in a very sort of like pigeon English sort of like mocking way, uh, mm. which is like, 
no, uh, you know, thank God that's not in the episode. Uh, but he goes over to Joel, who is seated at a bench, and Joel is depressed because Joel can't, uh, f- you know, find the vein. And Maurice is like, hey, we got all these volunteers. And Joel says, no, you got to send them all back because, uh, you know, I'm not going back in there. I'm not going to be a... I'm not going to be of, of much use as a doctor here. And so Maurice has to um, tell all the volunteers to go, go away. Um, yeah, that's, delete- <laughs> that's a deleted scene. So <laughs> I want to say, yeah, I think you're familiar with this one, but there is a, there is a scene in Nathan for you where, <laughs> yes. yeah, he's trying to get the, uh, he's like working at a nail salon. He's trying to get more business into this nail salon that employs a lot of Asian American people and he's trying to get the customers that come in to be uh, less rude to them, like less racist toward them. So he gets another person that can buck the stereotype. So he, he, he gets an Asian American woman that's like fantastic at driving. So mm-hmm. like that's bucking the stereotype of agents not being able to drive <laughs> and he's interviewing her and he's talking to her and he's saying like, all right, well, like the thing is, is that like, I, I need you to also to like, you know, the other Asian people in the salon also have like an accent. It's not their fault. You know, they're like immigrated here. That's just how they learn English. You might need to also do an accent like them. She's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And he's like, all right, well, like, let me, let me, I'll, I'll do the voice for you so that you can kind of understand what the accent is. Yeah. Is it going to be okay? Is it going to be fine? She's like, yeah, it's fine. And then he goes into like the most the racist, <laughs> like absolutely like not like okay squealing accent. sort of. It's like, so yeah, I've seen, cause there's like a, <laughs> that clip actually came up in my YouTube feed recently, but it was just like six seconds. It was just the clip of him like screaming. <laughs> I was like, what the heck? Removed from like, context is very strange. Out of context, most racist see you're gonna see <laughs> though i will say that like um you know it is 2022 people still call each other hitler on the internet mm-hmm. yeah man i really wonder what who what the reference there was in this episode but um but yeah uh well first off i'm just going back into my notes here uh from brandon's commentary brandon's notes uh the first thing he was talking about was the title which i think we talked a little bit about charles but you know, we've got the competitive blood drive and then sort of the the blood ties of Ed and Jeannie, more like question mark blood ties. Are they related? And yeah, I don't know. I think I think we talked about this already, but I just love the idea of this episode sort of being about blood. And at first, uh, actually, Brandon mentioned this as well. He sort of got sort of a more, is this going to be like a horror vibe or something? And it really doesn't play out that way. But I think it's neat that it is an episode so much about blood, literal blood, but it's not, you know, graphic or scary. I don't know. When you do see the blood bags fill up with blood at so rapidly, you know, that is kind of, mm-hmm. that is what Chris sees before he faints. And that is kind of creepy, but, but yeah, it's not meant to, to scare you or thrill you. Yeah. And he also referenced that he himself is not like super duper mm-hmm. big on the idea of blood being removed from him. <laughs> Even despite working in, in healthcare. He's squeamish himself. Uh, And uh, Brandon, he forgot the name of the character. It's Chris, Chris Stevens, played by John Corbett. He he commented a bit about Ed. I thought it was hilarious. Generally intelligent, but also very naive. He was, Brandon was, you know, a couple times he was like, yeah, he's generally intelligent, but also the dumb guy trope, I think he says. Which, yeah, Ed is sort of aloof and clueless a lot of times, and that is the... They play that for comedy. I think the only other, they do this sometimes, I think often with Shelly as well. Though I don't really think we see a lot of Shelly in this episode. 
Yeah, I mean, she's there. I'm trying. I remember the scenes now, like in the brick, but that's mostly her character too. Is like the dumb guy trope or whatever. What is it about Ed? He's he's just like uh, yeah, sort of like the I don't know. I was gonna say like he's sort of like the dummy with like secret wisdom, but not even that really. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's just uh, really simple. Yeah, which is not a bad thing. Exactly. No, I don't think it's bad at all to have that. It's a good a good foil for Joel Fleischman. You know, a simpleton versus this sort of brainy, anxious uh, Joel Fleischman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that you were saying that Brandon had a very methodical mind and he was able to, <laughs> like, you know, place things out. Uh, me and you did not comment on this, but Maurice has like a thousand dollars on this. Yeah. Bed, but he's willing to pay <laughs> nurses to fly it. Now, granted, Maybe he just had Maggie do it. Mm. So like it was like sort of like pseudo free, but assuming <laughs> that it's not, it's kind of like, yeah, it's got to offset the cost of the, uh, of the benefit. Yeah. We really missed that. We didn't point that out at all, but I think what Brandon is saying is like, you can see sort of the character of Maurice that he is the type of person who would just the thousand dollar bet. I think, I mean, thousand dollars is nice, but I think more to him, he wants the bragging rights over, uh, Cantwell. So he's he's going to pay more money than he'll even make out of this bet <laughs> just to uh, say that he's won and he's got the plaque. Did you notice, so Brandon, I talked about this a second ago, but Brandon was wondering if this was going to be sort of like horror television or something because in that opening, uh, in that opening of the episode where they're talking about blood and we got Takata in D minor and then um, we see the bulletin board where Ed is putting up flyers for the Dracula Film Fest Brandon said he noticed something about kidnappers or missing people. I don't know if that's something that Chris said on the radio. I doubt it. So he must have, it must be something that he saw on the bulletin board. And we talked about the bulletin board a bit, Charles, because you, you noticed a few things there too. But um, yeah, I didn't notice any uh, missing persons or uh, kidnappers. That is scary. <laughs> it's, that is very scary. From like if such a small town. you're going to put that town. on the bulletin board, yeah, you're like kidnapper on the loose or something. Yeah. Like it's one, I don't know. For some reason, it's one thing to be like, all right, someone got kidnapped in New York City. It's like, okay, yeah, that's like bar for the course. Like, mm -hmm. there's so many people there but like in a town that's that small mm -hmm. like i don't know something about it is extremely frightening yeah it's like a small pond so it's like it could be it could be anyone in this town you know it could be your neighbor or whatever well yeah that's all i've got for brandon's notes and brandon thank you so much for watching this episode i'm glad you enjoyed it had some fun with it and uh yeah thanks for taking the time to record your thoughts for us and charles we're going to be back next week to talk about the Season finale, bah, 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 season finale of, <laughs> sorry, I'm looking at the title real fast, Lovers and Mad Men, season finale of season five. This is episode 24, uh, not as long as season four. That was the longest season of all with 25 episodes, 24 episodes here, season finale, Lovers and Mad Men. What do you think it's going to be about? Oh, wow. Uh, that's got to be... It's got to be about Joel and Maggie, right? Yeah, because like, we've, we've had a lot. Of, like that. Yeah, we've had a lot going on with them in this episode. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be like, I don't know if the general like reset the status quo or something like that. Maybe this relationship isn't meant to last very long, but I'm going to guess that it's going to be something involving those two characters. Any predictions for just like something wild to happen at the end of this season? I guess they break up. Ooh. 
Wow. I mean, that, that's a good guess too. We talked about it in this episode. You know, they're not, they're not going to make it all the way to the end because Rob Morrow does leave the show at a certain point. Um, but this, I'll tell you, this isn't his last episode, obviously. He's in season six. Uh, but yeah. All right, Charles. Well, we're going to be talking about that next week. So uh, I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Brandon for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.